0: Welcome back to the Australian Histories podcast. Once again, I have to apologise for my croaky post-cold voice, but this podcast has been a long time in production, so just plough ahead. I hope it's okay. And also I'm recording somewhere um, out of the ordinary, so I hope there's not too much uh, noise. There's been a fair gap between the Buckley series and this episode, but I did manage to take a few days holiday before the season changed. I took a short road trip through the snowy mountains, visiting many of the places I spoke about in the Snowy Hydro series in episodes 38 to 42. I now know I didn't quite pronounce some of the township names as the locals do, but as always, we'll just assume that I do my best and we'll move past that pedantry (laughs) to the interesting stories. I also discovered how much had changed in the last few years, including the closure of all the hydro buildings to the public, with only a few sites even accessible to look at from the outside. Even the township of Cabramura was gated off, which was very disappointing to me. I happened to arrive just as news broke of a problem with the construction of Snowy Point 2 project and the tunnels being built to pump already used water back up into the higher dams in times of low demand so that it can be run through the turbines again in times of high demand. Pumped hydro, the dam storage acting as a battery. A very worthwhile project, but the present-day contractors are currently not operating at the speed and competence of the original Snowy contractors. (laughs) They have installed a massive tunnel boring machine, 11 metres in diameter and up to 200 metres long, which I believe allows for concrete tunnel construction to go in behind it as it moves forward, and supposedly capable of tunnelling 30 to 50 metres a day. Unfortunately, it came to light in the new year that it had tunnelled under unstable soil, which had then collapsed on top of it, and I'm assuming many buffoons will be needed to figure out how to get the massive thing out embarrassingly after all this time they were still only 150 meters or so in the tail of the machine only just inside the entrance shaft so no way was it operating speed suggested in the months prior and how had they not anticipated the soft soil so close ahead hudson's snowy men would have surveyed and test drilled the bejesus out of it before putting a one-way drilling machine on the job (laughs) more recent news on the status of that drilling machine is hard to come by Hudson would be turning in his grave with frustration. <laughs> I was very sorry that I didn't make it to the east side of the snowies in the time that I had, so I still have the hydro museums to look at at Cooma and hopefully at Amenibi, if that one's still open on my next visit. It's a stunning area, even if you're not interested in the snowy infrastructure. Looking at the buildings I could get near, much of it constructed in that massive industrial, almost brutalist style from the 50s, I was struck by the ageing concrete facades, reminding us just how long ago these buildings were actually constructed. I'm still in awe of the massive complex spread over the rugged and inspiring landscape up there. And of course I witnessed throughout the trip the damage and regrowth occurring now following the massive 2019-2020 bushfires that raged right through that region and over other areas across Australia. I am amazed that none of the major hydro structures were destroyed, though I imagine pylons may have been damaged. Anyway, standing under them and hearing the audible buzz of the power surging through was spooky, and a contrast to the relative quiet from the turbine buildings even as water was being released into the spillways after use. It's so nerdy, I know, but I loved it, and I can't wait to get back and finish exploring. One last place I came across that I'd previously been unaware of was the Yarrangabili Caves just off the Snowy Mountains Highway across the top. These are limestone caves that visitors can enter and tour, with a thermal pool located in the spectacular valley amongst the trees, also still recovering from the fires. The park's buildings, including a divine old timber guesthouse, probably built around the 1900s, were so impressive. I must put a picture on the episode website for you to see. It's amazing the way the 2019 20 fires burnt so hot into that valley, with the fire raging right down into the creek bed, the damage from the intense heat still evident on my visit, and yet those amazing old timber buildings were saved, apparently by just six blokes attending, preparing, backburning and watering the structures right up until the fire crested the hill behind and roared into the site. Only then did the firefighters retreat into the caves as the fire passed. A short GoPro clip on one of the firefighters helmets captured a short spell of what must have been a huge and terrifying day and it's been shared on youtube so i'll place a link to to that if it interests you i found it amazing that these beautiful old heritage buildings could have survived and i'm so grateful to the people involved for their dedication and tenacity anyway i better leave off reliving my brief holiday and get on with today's story speaking of facing adversity and finding a gutsy solution we're going to look at the history of one of the most amazing life-saving services still available to those living and travelling through the outback of Australia, the Royal Flying Doctor Service. Aussies live in a really big country, but most of it is sparsely populated. Most of the Australian population, or more than 70% of the currently nearly 26 million people, live in the main cities and regional centres, relatively close to the eastern, southwestern and southern coasts, with a few more populating the surrounding fringes, and I've included in the references a fairly recent demographic map showing population spread. But outside of that relatively thin strip of land along the eastern, southern and southwestern coast is the less inhabited centre we usually refer to as the outback. And until the last 50 years or so, much of it was often very difficult to access, isolated and sometimes very lonely to live in. Certainly the Indigenous Australians and others living in the outback live lives vastly different to those residing in the country's main population centres, deprived of many of the amenities, services and facilities we might take for granted as simply being part of our modern life. Hardy people live in the outback, but it can be a harsh place to work or raise a family, despite the obvious rewards for those who choose to live there. There are often huge distances between outback settlements, communities and service centres, Obviously, distance and isolation bring extra challenges, and we have innovated various solutions to assist over the years. Telegraph, radio, and later satellite, and now mobile phones. But still, there are times when even the most self-sufficient of homesteads and communities need outside help, and those travelling through can sometimes require urgent assistance too. The telegraph running through the centre of Australia, which we talked about in episode 61, brought the possibility of communication to any within reach of its lines by the late 1800s. And later, radio completely revolutionised outback communications. Schooling for isolated children was then facilitated by the school of the air, and residents could socialise remotely, in a limited way, across the vast distances. And we've all had a taste of how important some kind of communication is when we're locked out at home, haven't we? The two-way radio communication would have been a brilliant new technology for its day. Social contact and education are important and necessary, but being isolated from any professional help and having a medical emergency could be devastating. A minor and easily attended problem might very quickly become life-threatening without a speedy medical response and chronic health issues require regular attention to ensure good quality of life, which is unlikely to be available if you live many hundreds of miles from the nearest service, particularly in the early days when motor transport was rare and roads were rough and impassable in poor weather. So, one of the most beneficial innovations for our outback communities has been that Royal Flying Doctor Service. Let's take a look at how the service was conceived and developed to provide a mantle of safety right across the outback. Before I begin, I'd like to thank Jacqueline DeCee, Daniel K, Micah S, and Jordan D this month, whose recent contributions to the show help keep it in production and ad-free. I also want to thank the folks who left me some really generous and heartwarming reviews and comments on various platforms, and who got in touch via email. Oh, and this month one listener alerted me to my misspelling of the composer's name in the credits for the introductory music which I have modified and used. I have corrected that in this episode's reference notes, and I will work my way back to the older ones as time permits, but my apologies to David Lostanza. Okay, we'd better get on then. Let's hear about the history of the Royal Flying Doctor Service. The Royal Flying Doctor Service is a national charitable health organisation delivering primary health care and 24-hour emergency services via telehealth and an air service. Quote, Using the latest in aviation, medical and communications technology, the Royal Flying Doctor Service works to provide the emergency medical and primary health care services to anyone who lives, works or travels in rural and remote Australia. Unquote. What we know today as the Royal Flying Doctor Service came about through the vision and tenacity of a number of enthusiastic, community-minded people who wanted to bring essential medical services to the isolated visitors and residents of remote Australia. Most prominent of those men was the exceptionally energetic and determined Presbyterian minister John Flynn. Flynn was born in November of 1880 at Mollyagall, Victoria, and later trained for his ministry with a desire to work with people and communities outside the usual urban areas. His interest in the spiritual, mental, and physical health of these remote inhabitants, aware of the deprivations they suffered compared to the city folk, led him to publish a book titled The Bushman's Companion in 1910, attempting to fill some of the, quote, gaps in outback life, material, medical, social, religious, unquote. Certainly his book was intended to encourage an interest in his religion, but it began with the very practical and really quite thorough first aid chapters, before moving on to sections like making a will and then offering some religious content, prayers for the dead and so on. The publication included blank pages for notes, accounts and the like, along with calendars and postal information and so on. Indeed, Flynn's book proved to be a very handy reference for the Bushmen and Women of the Outback and was considered a great success helping to publicise the Australian Inland Mission that he'd set up as the Inland Superintendent of the Presbyterian Church. I'll place a link to the scanned copy of the 1916 version of Bushman's Companion in the reference list on the Australian Histories podcast webpage, if you're interested. In doing this research, it was sometimes uncomfortable reading some of the writings of Flynn. He was obviously a man of his age, not being immune to the racism of the time, but while his focus was generally directed at the white colonists, I think we can see that he was interested in doing his Christian best for the indigenous communities of the Outback too, as he understood that in that era. But mostly he was focused on the many deprivations the residents living in the outback endured compared to their city counterparts, and health and medical treatment, or the lack of it, was in the front of mind for Flynn. He was instrumental, through the Presbyterian Australian Inland Mission structure, in establishing a number of bush nursing stations in remote area catchments, such as the original Bush Hospital that he built in Oodnadatta in 1911. Staffed with qualified nurses, these were excellent facilities for those in reach who otherwise had no other medical assistance and it filled a service gap unattended by the governments of the day. Along with the nursing hospitals, he envisaged a general practitioner's service and a capacity for a casualty response. Flynn wanted to, quote, throw what he called a mantle of safety over those who sought to wrest a living out of the hard, unyielding outback, unquote. But how to do it? Help at these bush hospitals was still limited, being staffed generally by nurses alone and accessible only to those who had transport and were well enough to travel by camel, horse, or primitive motor vehicles in an era when constructed roads were rare and certainly rough. So, Flynn continued to lobby to bring medical care to even more remote locations and often wrote in his widely distributed magazine, The Inlander, about the conundrum of making these remote stations and communities accessible to modern health care. The difficulties related to communication, let alone vehicular or other transport access, seemed almost insurmountable, but he kept on working the problem. Of course, since 1914, the First World War had been raging in Europe, and the new aeroplanes were doing their bit. One Australian fighter pilot operating over France, John Clifford Peel, wrote an article for Flynn's October 1918 Inlander magazine suggesting that planes might be the answer to providing speedy access to emergencies in the outback. His idea is to utilise aeroplanes covering certain areas to convey mail, household supplies medical attention Government officials and other needs to the frontier settlers, and he points out how comparatively easy and cheaply this can be done by a proposed aerial service. He said, quote, If the nation can do so much in the days of war, surely it will do its bit in the coming days of peace, and here is its chance. Unquote. Clifford Peel shared that great vision with Flynn, but he was an optimistic chap to think that the government might take on and fund such a service. Flynn certainly saw the planes as a solution to the vast distances too, and was keen to champion the idea, perhaps even running it as part of the Australian Inland Mission structure, if the government would not take it on. And so his focused lobbying continued. Unfortunately, Clifford Peel didn't live to see his idea blossoming, as he was killed in action only weeks before the war's end, and he didn't get to see the level of interest it promoted at home, his idea virtually being the blueprint for Flynn to work on. But soon many others from the new Australian Flying Corps returned home and were looking for constructive ways to use their new flying skills in Australia now that the Defence Department no longer needed them. Flynn had approached the Defence Department to ask if they could use their resources post-war to supply outback medical services, but the answer was no. Hudson Fish and Paul Ginty McGuinness were two just such returned pilots, who were already keen on the idea of setting up a passenger airline in Australia's north, founding the service in November of 1920, in Winton, then Longreach in Queensland. Australians are not so enamoured with the resulting airline in recent years, but for much of the 20th century, most were enormously proud of the routes and operations of Fish and McGuinness's resulting Queensland and Northern Territory Air Services, perhaps better known as Qantas. After failing to get the government and defence departments on board, Flynn met with Fish and McGuinness in 1921, and they were enthusiastic about the idea. But Fish in particular was concerned about the safety elements of such a service. And of course, he had to point out to Flynn that at that time, there simply were no planes available that could carry a pilot, doctor and patient, particularly if a stretcher was required. Still, they would keep an eye on the developments as aeroplane construction around the world ramped up, and they would keep in touch with Flynn. But one of the most obvious and important obstacles to Flynn's proposed service working well was, of course, the lack of reliable communication across the expanses of the outback and back to the regions with any ease. The interior was, as Flynn referred to it, effectively dumb, that is, having no capacity to communicate with those at a distance." The telegraph lines had gone through in the centre of the country in the late 1800s, as we discussed in episode 61, but the telegraph was still accessible and connected to only a limited number of places in the outback at that time. Radio was also still in its infancy, and certainly those living on remote stations and communities were unlikely to have such new technology, or the electricity and antennas that would allow them to work across such vast distances. But, as happens with most exciting new inventions, there was a developing coterie of wireless nerds, I mean, wireless clubs, (laughs) that were testing and advancing these new communications. And one such nerd, oh, I mean, inventor, was radio enthusiast and ham radio operator, Alf Traeger, and he would be instrumental in creating a workable solution. Yay, Alf! I always wondered why these enthusiasts were called ham radio operators. Wiki tells us that the term probably came from ham-fisted, amateur radio operators who had poor or ham-fisted skills. A pejorative term then, in the beginning perhaps, but it was later used to refer to those very dedicated to their hobby, many of whom were exceptionally skilled and knowledgeable. In 1926, Traeger gained his amateur operations proficiency certificate and he came to the attention of Flynn who soon employed him at six pound a week to travel the outback attempting to improve the problematic transceivers of the time. They needed to develop and refine a radio that could send and receive reliably and be easily operated and maintained in isolated situations they needed to reliably power the unit at locations far from any on-grid electricity service and Traeger was the man to bring all this together. Quote, In 1928, Traeger developed the pedal-powered radio, a floor-mounted generator driven with bicycle pedals powering a radio transceiver which could send Morse code. Unquote. So not exactly a quick call from a contacts list, the user having to learn Morse code to communicate first and be able to simultaneously pedal steadily to get the messages through, but it was still a groundbreaking and game-changing development, which would allow the service to operate as Clifford Peel and Flynn had imagined. If you could communicate, you could call for help when it was needed. MacDonald records Flynn's words, explaining that Traeger's pedal set would quote, "...let the dumb inland speak." Unquote. Learning to use the unit was only one of the difficulties to overcome, White ants and heat could destroy the casing within a year in some environments and the earliest wooden-cased radio sets had to be replaced with metal units before they were considered reliable. So living in the outback certainly had its challenges. The Traeger units continued in production in a factory in Marrickville, Adelaide for many years while further refinements were underway. Though the Royal Flying Doctor Service records that hundreds of them were still in use right into the 1950s. But the physical radios and electrical supplies were not the only obstacle Flynn had to tackle. As radio services in general developed, the then General Post Office, who had regulation of existing telecommunications, were managing the use and rollout of the limited radio frequencies. So Flynn again had to lobby to be granted permissions for the radio frequency to be used exclusively by the proposed AIM, the Australian Inland Mission, medical service. Pulling together these strands was an ongoing process, but Flynn continued pressing and encouraging, even when his own organisation was doubting the viability of the proposal. I think he must be given great praise for his tenacity. He simply just kept the project chugging along on the agenda for the public, his organisation and even politicians, despite the many obstacles and setbacks. In 1924, Fish had some good news for Flynn. Qantas had ordered the new English de Havilland DH-50A aeroplane, a design which could accommodate a pilot, doctor and a patient on a stretcher. Flynn would soon have access to a plane that might meet the needs of his imagined service. We need to consider that planes in those early days had very little in the way of instrumentation, and Fish, already at that time a massive stickler for safety, and realising a good safety record would be essential for the success of his ongoing business, insisted that the service could only operate during daylight hours, though in time this rule would be bent if the pilot felt it was safe to do so, so those needing urgent attention towards dark might not yet benefit, but even a limited service would be a great improvement for the isolated. Clearing landing strips would be required wherever they might be expected to land and fuel would need to be available at multiple locations across the operating area as in the early days planes could only travel only relatively short distances before needing refuelling. Initially they would land only at agreed hubs so that the injured and sick still had to make their way some distance to get help in most cases and of course potential flights would need to make allowance for unexpected weather delays. Aviation forecasting was primitive at that time too, and quite limited for much of the outback. So even if a plane with capacity to carry a doctor and patient had been immediately available, there were still many hurdles to make such a service viable. By the mid-1920s, the main problems were on the way to being solved, and Flynn was very determined to get his medical service up and running. But with no government support and concern from his church hierarchy, funding was a major problem. Fortunately, a long-time supporter of his proposal, one H.V. McKay, a farm machinery manufacturer, at that time one of the richest men in Australia, left a large ongoing bequest for, quote, an aerial experiment, unquote, in May of 1928. While the Church had committed to supporting the venture for a couple more years, Flynn now had the firm funding to begin a one-year trial of the service. With the new pedal-powered transceiver radios, so called because of their dual purpose in both receiving and transmitting messages, and the Qantas de Havilland DH-50A ready for lease at a cost of two shillings per mile, Flynn's aerial medical service, as it was first known, would test the systems and arrangements to date over a limited area, with the base operating near an existing government-run hospital at Cloncurry in Queensland. The first base would cover a radius of around 480 kilometres, an area of more than 650,000 square kilometres, or three times the size of Victoria. Keyser noted that the financial agreement with Qantas allowed them to supply a commercially viable ambulance aircraft and pilot, ensuring that they would be guaranteed 25,000 miles at two shilling a mile. In the end, half the sum would be paid for by the Civil Aviation Authority, so Flynn had extracted some support from a government body with the other half covered by Flynn's charity. If the service was successful, Flynn would embark on a fundraising drive to fund a wider service. The first Qantas pilot for the service, operating the de Havilland, quote, single-engine, fabric-covered, cabin, biplane, capable of carrying a pilot and four passengers at a cruising speed of just under 80 miles per hour, unquote, was Arthur Affleck. Affleck was, by all accounts, a cautious and skilled pilot who had knowledge of the landmarks in the flying area and the usual weather patterns and the like, so he was an excellent choice. Everyone was aware that the new service was being evaluated and that they must ensure everything worked safely. Fish, ever cautious, sent instructions to station owners in the catchment area advising quote, how to make your own landing ground and how to receive an aeroplane, unquote. This flying machinery was still novel, and the requirements for a plane to land and take off safely would be completely unknown for most people. Later, the airstrips would need to be registered and rated so that pilots knew what to expect, and safety could be assured. Then fuel depots were arranged across the networks to allow for additional emergency calls while the flights were already out, rather than returning to base. The first doctor employed at £1,000 per annum was Sydney surgeon Dr Kenyon St Vincent Welsh. Welsh was selected from amongst 22 applicants, responding to an advertisement in the Australian Medical Journal. Having been unable himself to serve in World War I, Welsh was very keen to undertake such a duty, leaving his successful practice behind for the year's contract. Over the year, he would be, quote, "...faced with shootings, drowning, suicides, motor accidents, as well as more conventional illnesses," unquote, including typhoid fever and other serious conditions that might have gone unattended in the outback. No doubt on the cattle stations there would have been plenty of falls from horses and other accidents resulting in broken bones and crush injuries, These were the very things that often proved fatal with no timely intervention and the vast distances meant travel by car or other modes often caused more damage to the injured person before help could be reached. Welsh's first medical call-out, in the plane then named Victory, without the communications or navigation aids we rely on today, occurred two days after his arrival. Flying from Cloncurry to Julia Creek, approximately 140 kilometres away, to attend two patients at the Julia Creek Bush Nursing Home, one of whom had attempted suicide by trying to cut his own throat, pilot Affleck landed Welsh nearby, and he walked to the nursing home and successfully performed two minor operations. During his one-year tenure, Welsh treated 225 patients and made 50 flights. Not all of these early missions had a successful outcome, though. On one occasion he was called to a shooting incident at Kynuna, some 200 kilometres to the south. The flight would bring them down in the dark, but with a moonlit night and car headlights illuminating the landing strip, they deemed it possible. Welsh then had to wade through a flooded river with his full surgical kit to reach the wounded man. He operated into the night, but unfortunately he could not save him. But at least everyone felt that they had done all that was possible to try. Other earlier patients fared much better though. One man, a miner, was brought into Cloncurry after a mining accident at Mount Isa. The man had suffered a broken pelvis, and while the distance may have been traversable by car at 120 kilometres, it would have been an excruciatingly slow trip, on poor roads, every bump agony, with the potential for greater damage to his injury. It was a great story with a great result, and the media enjoyed sharing the dramatic tale, which resulted in more goodwill and donations coming into the new service. But a large obstacle remained during that first year, while communication still required Morse code. Learning this task often fell to the women at the stations, being more often close to the homesteads, but it was a difficult job to master. And of course, your coordination was challenged, having to pedal smoothly in one rhythm while hitting the Morse keys in a completely different rhythm. Perhaps those familiar with a foot-pedal pottery wheel or a treadle singer sewing machine would be the best candidates. But it was difficult to master Morse code. Indeed, the nursing sisters at Birdsville struggled to get their message out, and following that failure in communication, one of the nursing sisters there died of peritonitis, a burst appendix, before the doctor could be called in. A preventable problem if she could have been evacuated to a surgical hospital in time. Once again, Alf Traeger came to the rescue, creating a keyboard that could translate keystrokes of the letters into Morse greatly enhancing the usefulness of the radio communication system, until full voice communication became available in later years. With the Cloncurry base set up in 1928, the first pedal wireless with a new keyboard innovation was soon installed in Augustus Town Station, 325 kilometres out of town. Quote, the first transmission was made on June 19, 1929, by Gertrude Rothery, the manager's wife, to Traeger's assistant, Harry Kinsbruner, at Cloncurry, unquote. So the service was really coming along nicely. In that first year, the Aerial Medical Service flew over 32,000 kilometres in over 50 flights. Where the Aerial Medical Service was available, it certainly saved lives and made outback life more comfortable servicing some very isolated communities. It was nothing short of a popular and practical success. Flynn rammed up his fundraising efforts and other support was forthcoming. When Flynn's Aerial Medical Service, then under the control of Flynn and the Presbyterian Church, was transferred to an independent board of management and renamed the National Australian Aerial Medical Service in 1933, all radios and other equipment, partially funded with the support of the Presbyterian Australian Inland Mission, were gifted to the people and communities concerned. The new National Service continued to innovate and make improvements. Using the keyboard with letters or via voice radio communications, consultations directly with the doctor could more often solve or alleviate a medical issue without the need for an emergency call out flight. However, particular medicines were often required. Quote, in 1939, Dr. Keith Sweetman, a flying doctor based at Windham in Western Australia, saw that telehealth was of limited value in the absence of pre positioned medications for patients to access. He also realised that considerable radio time was being wasted by questioning patients on what was available in their first aid kits. Most people had haphazard collections of patient medicines. Sweetman suggested standardising the medical equipment held in remote locations so that people at those locations could self-administer treatment under the instruction of a doctor through radio consultations. And so a standard medical kit to support the service was developed and has continued to be refined over the years. The early medicine chest supplied was quote, four foot wide, two foot six high, and two foot six deep, unquote. Inside, the medicines supplied were listed on the lid and separated into specific trays, originally named, then later also numbered for ease of identification for lay people. In prescribing a medication, the doctor could say, get bottle number 23 and take with meals twice a day, or whatever was required for the condition they were a uniform product consisting of the most useful medical requirements and until fairly recently were provided free of charge of course radio has its limitations for medical communications consultations with the doctor were being broadcast over open radio waves (laughs) and there were stories of others listening in and neighbours etc chiming in with their five cents worth of advice and experience (laughs) so the early days of telehealth could be a little challenging too and goodness help you if, if your condition was of a personal or intimate nature with everyone listening in many a delicate medical condition, it may have remained undiagnosed and untreated until phone services with a private line became available at least. <laughs> now the medical kit consists of a smaller green metal chest, about 30 centimeters by 45 If the homestead station or site has communication facilities of some kind and is able to contact the Royal Flying Doctor Service, these days medical chests can be provided at a subsidised cost for those more than 80 kilometers from another medical facility. Usually remote stations or communities, national parks or small mine sites, and coastal vessels will have one, for example. Some medications can be administered, unsupervised, but many are marked must be prescribed, requiring contract with the RFDS for a doctor to diagnose, prescribe and advise on dosage and use. The box contains a full numbered list of contents and a diary should be used, noting when supplies are removed, which can then be submitted to the service for restocking. As mentioned in the past, costs were fully covered by the Commonwealth, but it looks like some subsidised costs are charged, by some regions at the time of writing at least. The cost of supplying the full chest though is close to $1,000, so the subsidies would be needed for many in the outback. The Royal Flying Doctor Service says, Medical chests are lockable steel containers containing a wide range of medicines which enable emergency and non-emergency treatment for people who do not have access to professional medical care. A person needing medical care can receive advice from the RFDS doctor via telephone who then is able to prescribe appropriate medication from the chest. The RFDS has 2,370 medical chests which provide peace of mind to those living in the most remote parts of the Australian outback." In 1950, another really helpful innovation was developed by Sister Lucy Garlick, who was at that time stationed with the Flying Doctor Service near Broome, Western Australia. She devised a chart which divided a body plan into numbered regions. The layperson liaising with the doctor remotely could accurately identify the site of the pain or injury, for example, using the Where Does It Hurt? chart as a prompt allowing the doctor a better opportunity of assessing the patient's condition garlic was quote also instrumental in the establishment of an infant health center in east and west kimberley a service providing face to face advice and medical care to mothers and pregnant women unquote so she and so many others involved with the flying doctor service have been wonderful contributors to the service and therefore the health of the people in the outback As the years progressed, radios were installed at every outback station, and later, when they were more reliably powered, they could be left switched on for extended periods. Once voice transmission was operational, they became the invaluable communication tool, bridging the vast distances in the outback. The usefulness of the Royal Flying Doctor Service radios expanded beyond emergency and medical-clinical use helping to ease the loneliness and isolation that remote living could inflict, and providing the wider community liaison over great distance that Flynn had hoped to bring, along with the Royal Flying Doctor Service medical help. Allowing people across vast regions to communicate directly with each other was wonderful for many, but possibly the next most important service that the Royal Flying Doctor Service radios could facilitate for the outback communities was the brilliant Australian School of the Air, beginning in 1951. Children living remotely across the huge geographical areas could now be assisted with virtual school communities and communicate directly with their teachers and be instructed in the standard state curriculum that their city-based peers were undertaking, supporting the isolated families and small communities in educating their kids. School of the Air sometimes even shared offices with the Royal Flying Doctor Service, like uh, at Port Hedland, in an era before satellite, internet and phone communications. And organisations such as the Country Women's Association meetings or Agricultural Department communications could also be run across the same radio network. So it really brought the communities together and made the running of the outback stations a more civilised prospect. While always being available for emergency transmissions to be undertaken at any time, many areas had a fixed timetable to allow for multiple community uses. Time was set aside for daily remote medical consultations, a little like the telehealth appointments many of us in the cities have experienced during COVID, except that all those in the regions might be listening and could hear every gruesome detail about your condition. (laughs) These would be new, non-urgent consultations as required, or follow-ups for previous conditions, or pregnancy monitoring for example, or keeping a close eye on chronic health conditions like diabetes. The requirements changed over the years as new technologies alleviated some needs, but early on there were regular times for any telegrams received at the Central Post Office to be read over the air for the region involved. And in the middle of the day they had an hour, often called the Galar sessions, (laughs) when the airwaves were open for anyone to chat with anyone else. Again, a giant public non-visual Zoom session across vast stretches of country, And these were extremely welcome and helpful forum for many, particularly the isolated women of the outback, continuing to operate until phones became widely available. And then the School of the Air at nominated times in the afternoon, complementing the correspondence school materials that were undertaken at home. In 1942, the Australian Aerial Medical Service once again changed its name, becoming the Flying Doctor Service of Australia. Flynn lived to see the Flying Doctor Service of Australia flourish, dying of cancer in May of 1952. He must have been delighted by the huge success of the service he founded, now supported and embraced across Australia by people everywhere. A base operating out of Broken Hill, which had begun its service in May of 1936, became the site of a royal visit in 1954, when Queen Elizabeth II bestowed the Royal prefix onto the Flying Doctor Service name, saying, (coughs) I have heard so much of the work of the Flying Doctor Service and the security and comfort it brings to every part of the outback. I express my admiration to all those past and present who have contributed to its splendid work, unquote. uncanny, isn't it? The Queen also seems to be recovering from a cold. Who knew? By the mid-1970s, the service included regular clinic visits by specialist medical consultants. Today's specialist visits include dermatologists, ear, nose and throat specialists, and ophthalmologists, even dentists. That's a better service than we get in the city. In 1996, a highly successful TV drama called, guess what, The Flying Doctors, commenced. It ran for 221 episodes across eight years. I've never seen it myself, but the Royal Flying Doctor Service website advises that a new contemporary series is going into production in the coming year, using the, quote, Broken Hill Base as the location for filming due to its impressive red dirt landscapes, Unquote. So maybe I'll try and catch one of those. The Dubbo Royal Flying Doctor Service Visitor Center noted that when the service celebrated its 90th year in 2018, a squadron of 25 vintage aircraft, including a flight by the restored original Flying Doctor's 1934 Fox Moth, set off from Dubbo on the 9th of May to fly to Mount Isa in Queensland various section flights from the services history were undertaken over the following days the second last leg of the journey was flown from Cloncurry to Julia Creek which followed the route of that first ever flying doctor flight taken on the 17th of May 1928 They also noted a second royal visit in October of 2018 when Prince Harry and Megan visited the Flying Doctor base in Dubbo, meeting the Flying Doctor teams, their families, volunteers and past patients before officially unveiling the most recent addition to the RFDS fleet, a Beechcraft King Air B350 propeller plane. During its first few decades, the service relied heavily on community fundraising, volunteer support and donations. Nowadays, the service is supported by the Commonwealth, State and Territory Government, but still relies heavily on fundraising and donations from the community to purchase and medically equip its aircraft, and to finance other major capital initiatives. Until the 1960s, the service predominantly hired aircraft pilots and service technicians from contractors, initially Qantas, obviously. After this point, the service moved on to purchasing its own equipment and employing its own pilots and mechanics." So while city people with an injury or illness might make their way to a casualty hospital, they might wait many hours before even moving past the triage station, depending on demand and more urgent cases ahead of them. An emergency call to the RFDS across the radio, or now by phone, from someone living well off the beaten track will get a response to their call in moments and communication with a doctor to triage the situation immediately. And if medical attention is required, it can be arranged straight away. Most calls are triaged into three response priorities. 1. Go now. 2. Urgent but negotiate timing. 3. Elect a response. These are sometimes known as flash, immediate and routine. The RFDS differs from any air ambulance service that operates around the world because clinical decisions are made by a qualified medical doctor on call with consultations available from many areas of medical specialty if required these days at first contact, Obviously, weather, distance and current status of the plane's availability might mean a longer wait than hoped, but the service does have the flexibility now to reroute planes in flight to the critical cases, and in the meantime, the person calling can get expert advice on what to do as first aid, often using extensive resources from medical kits, which should still be available at remote sites. By the way, there's a great live map available from the RFDS website that allows you to see where the aircraft are flying at any point in time. I'll provide a link for those interested. If you click on the aircraft itself, you can get all the details of its destination, its takeoff time, its present ETA, the full flight path plan information actually. When I last looked at 10pm on Easter Monday, there were currently 7 flights active, None of those in the eastern states, by the way. And you had information about what kind of aircraft was undertaking the flight. It was really interesting. So no problem flying around at night these days in most cases then either. As I mentioned before, the doctors have the authority to decide on what response is appropriate from a telehealth consultation to the air evacuation call-out. The decision about the safety to actually fly to any call-out always rests with the pilot, though, as the expert in the flying capacity of the plane. The pilot on duty will learn about the priority assigned to the call, consider the expected weather and landing conditions where they need to go, to ensure the safety of all involved. Of course, anecdotally, many pilots find a real medical emergency a hard thing to ignore, so everything is always considered, but safety has always been maintained. Those calling the service to their remote airstrips must try and clear the runways of stock and animals, check and report on its condition, and provide lighting to assist the approach and landing if light is poor or now at night. Road accident patients might often be attended in situ, and so the outback roads may be directly used as a landing strip on occasion. So when you're driving along those roads in the outback, don't forget to look up. Many of the doctors joining the service over the years have come in from overseas, so the outback environment must have been quite a different experience for many, and the outback personalities and range of emergencies and illnesses potentially even more so. Those who've worked in the service over the years will have experienced many unusual and interesting situations, and I expected there would be a wealth of stories out there. Many were quite harrowing or heartwarming, but I think the funniest one I came across was an unusual story of a call-out to an outback station somewhere in Cape York, with a rather temperamental cook on staff. Apparently the cook was well known for his unsteady and fierce temper and he would regularly storm off in a huff at some imperceptible slight. Even the toughest roustabouts would know to leave him alone and simply wait it out until he'd cooled off. One morning, it seems, some mysterious thing got his ire up and set him off and he threw his usual tantrum and then stormed off to the outback dunny to contemplate and calm down in his own time. These were days before septic tanks with flushing water conveniences were common on isolated stations. The outback dunny of the time, and for my international listeners, a dunny is a slang term for toilet, would simply consist of a small shed containing probably a bench seat rigged up over a long drop. The family and station workers in this case, rather than dig a deep trench for the purpose, had instead conveniently sited their long rock toilet over an abandoned mine shaft, of which there were several in the area, apparently. Quiet contemplation was needed for the cook to cool down, and everyone knew to leave him well enough alone until he returned in his own time. So when the coast was clear, they grabbed their breakfast from the kitchen and headed out to their work for the day. They noted he had still not returned at morning tea, but with only mildly raised eyebrows, they simply helped themselves to tea again and continued on with their chores. By lunchtime, though, they were beginning to worry that he hadn't returned. Some poor fellow was given the task of finding him and at some point knocking on the closed dunny door and asking, was he all right? No response was forthcoming, though they thought that he must be in there, so others then came to see what was going on. Finally, they heard a faint response to their yelling, a distant and muffled, help, and on breaking in the door, they saw that the whole toilet seat and floor structure had collapsed down the mine shaft, dropping the cook in with it. White ants had probably undermined the floor structure, but a more horrific discovery could not have been imagined. The cook had fallen a substantial distance into, well, it's just about making me gag with revulsion to think about it, but years of built-up human sewerage. Luckily, he was conscious, but the fool may well have severely injured him, and so the flying doctor was called in, while the stockmen set about demolishing the rest of the dunny building and built a winching structure over the mineshaft to try and haul him up. The story goes that they had extracted him and washed him by the time that the medical help arrived, but that his smell remained overwhelming. Fortunately, he had not suffered anything more serious than bruising in the fall, but he was apparently put on a course of antibiotics <laughs> to reduce his risk of illness from the substantial contamination he'd been exposed to for those hours. Oh, the horror! It was said he appeared to be a little less volatile after his ordeal, and certainly he always told someone when he was off to spend a penny, just to be sure they knew where he was. <laughs> Another great story was about a young child who'd been told that the flying doctor had been called out to their airstrip. She was tremendously excited about the impending arrival of the flying doctor, and she insisted on joining them out at the airstrip. But it turned out she was bitterly disappointed when she just saw a boring old plane landing and boring old people getting out. Ripped off. Where was the flapping and soaring doctor she had been imagining? (laughs) She was right. It would have been truly exciting had the doctor actually flown in without the plane. (laughs) Still, even if the doctors do not arrive under their own flapping steam, MacDonald notes that the Royal Flying Doctor Service today remains one of the most remarkable services in the world, covering around 80% of Australia's land mass, roughly the size of the entire USA, and still operates free of charge to those in need. Fundraising is still a high priority and indeed a necessity to keep the service running and you will often see the donation collection points or community fundraisers operating in country towns and at the Outback services to keep the flying doctors flying. Today, the doctors working for the RFDS must have at least five years postgraduate experience with experience in paediatrics, obstetrics, emergency medicine and anaesthetics. For some, though, the range of rural, remote and completely isolated sites can still be challenging, though more specialist support is usually available at the end of the radio or phone if required. And nurses employed generally have additional training too. It's certainly a specialist area of medical operation. For example, the flight nurses must remember to remove some of the air from those modern inflatable splints used before they take off so that it will not over-tighten as the pressure changes at altitude. We hear the stories from time to time, one of which was afterwards attended by the RFDS, of some novice having to be guided by the doctor or specialist to begin some kind of treatment so that a patient has a chance of still being alive when help arrives. Like the poor person who had to use a builder's drill to cautiously drill into the skull of a patient who had taken a hard fall, resulting in blood swelling in his brain. Without relieving the pressure in a timely manner, there would have been little that the medicos could have done by the time they arrived. It must have been horrific for the person charged with doing it, but very reassuring to have the specialist on the line talking him through it, at least. Often life-saving is about rapid response, and with the aircraft today, response times, even in the most remote areas, can be surprisingly fast if you're lucky. The flight doctor and nurse are paged, and take-off usually occurs in a very short time, certainly within 30 minutes after the call. In some instances now, at the doctor's discretion, the service may operate with a pilot and a qualified nurse when appropriate, and qualified nurse practitioners may staff the remote clinics for particular needs, such as the well-baby clinics or dialysis treatment, for example. The Royal Flying Doctor Service operates as seven legal regional entities under a federated joint venture agreement structure. Each of the entities are independent, both financially and operationally, with their own board of management, and are charities registered and regulated by the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profit Commission. Each region may have minor operational differences, but in general they all operate in similar ways. Servicing 7.69 million square kilometres, they provide 24-hour aeromedical emergency services that can reach anywhere, no matter how remote, within hours. Approximately 29% of Australians living in rural and remote Australia have up to three times the prevalence of avoidable chronic illness. The prevention and management of chronic illness, disease and mental health problems is a large part of the services provided. More recently, the RFDS delivers around 65 primary health care clinics on a daily basis, with about 1,000 patient contacts a day. While the RFDS will always be known for its aeromedical services, Primary health care now makes up two-thirds of our daily operations, as a continued emphasis on prevention is vital to see better health outcomes for those that live in the bush, from immunizations, health checkups, referrals or management of chronic conditions such as diabetes, cardiovascular illness, and general lifestyle issues. Unquote. In the previous year, the RFDS undertook 387,042 total patient contacts through the RFDS clinics, aeromedical transports and telehealth consultations, unquote, that constituted more than 28,051,000 kilometres flown and more than 1,000 patient contacts daily. These days, most communications come to the RFDS via a toll-free phone number now that mobile and satellite communications reach many parts of the country. And the fleet of aeroplanes has, of course, developed in suitability and range. These days the planes can generally operate during darkness and in more marginal weather conditions than those fish worried about in the early days. Better technology in onboard navigation and other advances, along with more civilised and graded landing strips in the majority of locations, and the ability for stations to light up approach with visible flares etc. has greatly expanded the service capabilities. Many outback roads show signs alerting drivers to be aware that straight stretches of road may be used for emergency landings. So always remember to keep an eye on those big skies out there. Indeed, road accidents on those outback roads now constitute a good percentage of remote emergency call-outs for the RFDS these days. Along with other accidents and incidents that might occur on cattle stations and remote mining sites, such as fall and crush injuries, call-outs might be required for severe asthma attacks, spider and snake bites, poisonings and respiratory and cardiac events. Clinics for those ongoing medical conditions from diabetes management to antenatal clinics and preventative health measures such as checking for skin cancers and monitoring eye diseases, particularly prevalent in the Indigenous communities, are also regularly scheduled across the remote regions, often held at central stations or at outback Aboriginal communities. These days, the RFDS operates Australia's third largest airline, with, at last look at the RFDS stats, 79 aircraft operating from 23 bases across the country. They have five different planes that are used for aeromedical operations. Um, Let's see, the Pilatus PC-12, the PC-24, the King Air B350C and the B200C, and the new Beechcraft King Air 360 CHW turboprop. They also operate an aeromedical helicopter in the service in Western Australia. And the RFDS have their own podcast, mostly offering health-related information, as you would imagine, though I listened to an episode on Alf Traeger, which was interesting. Again, I'll place a link in the show notes for you. The service marks many firsts and is still a much-loved institution. Flynn appointed Jean White as the first female flying doctor as early as 1937, for example. Flynn was awarded the Order of the British Empire for his efforts, and while he was too busy to attend the awards ceremony and somewhat embarrassed by all the fuss, he was aware that the accompanying fanfare would be very helpful in their ongoing fundraising efforts, required to keep the service running. In 1944, Traeger was also awarded an Order of the British Empire for his contributions to the service, but he was such a humble man, his daughter says it was years before he even shared the news of the award with his family. The Royal Flying Doctor Service was a great innovation and remains an exceptional service. If you have a few beans to spare, you could do worse than sending them away at the RFDS. I hoped you enjoyed hearing about John Flynn and Clifford Peel and Alf Traker and Hudson Fish. They did us all a great service. Now, my podcast recommendation for this month is called History Pod. I thought I had mentioned them earlier, but it doesn't look like I have. HistoryPod is a daily podcast that presents a detailed, yet concise account of a key event from each day in history. Written and presented by Scott Alsop, an experienced history teacher and graduate of the University of Cambridge, these few-minute-long insights are fascinating and help you brush up on your knowledge of precedent events in history. And they're really short, so great for uh, listening to a couple when you haven't got too much time to commit. <laughs> I'll place a link to the series details at the Australian histories podcast website. So thanks so much again for listening and thanks so much for those lovely communications last month. Now, I've got a big list of topics that I want to get to, but occasionally I just come across a book which grabs my fancy and I think, "Oh, just have a quick look at that." So next month, I'm going to look at something well, oh, I hope it's fun i'm I'm sure you're going to enjoy it and I'm really looking forward to doing the reading. Just a short one, I hope. Okay, so take care and I'll talk with you again soon. Cheers.